This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Overcomers, God's Vision for You to Thrive in an Age of Anxiety and Outrage, written and narrated by pastor and best-selling author Matt Chandler, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Today's episode is brought to you by the Christian Standard Bible. The CSB blends accuracy and readability, giving pastors a translation they can trust and lay people a Bible they can enjoy. Find out more at csbible.com. In 1968, a band from Youngstown, Ohio, signed their first record deal. They were called the Glass Harp, and they were fronted by a 17-year-old firebrand guitar player named Phil Kagey. I was born in Youngstown, Ohio, Northside Hospital, uh, 1951, March. Ninth of ten kids. Oh, wow. Big family. Big family. So, that's where it all began. And one of my earliest remembrances of just feeling safe and held was my mom or my sister, one of them, carrying me up to bed when I was probably an infant. I just kind of remember that. And sometimes I think about those early days. Mm. Because... Life makes its impressions on you, and so do people For before sure. you realize it. Yeah. And, uh, of course, there's always music in the house. Who were the musicians in the house? Well, Brother Dave played guitar. He's my second oldest brother. Mm-hmm. But he basically became a career pilot. And when there was Carl, electrician. Bill ended up being an electrician. Mike, an iron worker. Brother Jimmy passed away in a car accident when I was just two, so I didn't really mm. get to know him. Mm. But my oldest sister, Mary Ellen, was a singer, and she became an actress, and she worked in Hollywood in the 50s and the 60s. And so she put about, you know, a good 20 years in her career, and then she gave it up for her family that she wanted to raise. But she's the one who also, incidentally, in 1970, after her mom's passing in a car accident, uh, she led me to the Lord. And that's when that began, and that beautiful journey began. There's a pine warbler sitting on a hollow limb He seems to have the whole morning out right in front of him And everything he sings from the branch that he's sitting on It seems to hush the leaves and the colors all around Now first he sings and then he goes And what it means it's hard to know You're listening to Cultivated, conversations about faith and work. I'm Mike Cosper, and this episode is the first of a two-part series with Phil Kagey. Phil's been making music for more than 50 years. He's had incredible experiences along the way, and he's also considered one of the world's great guitar players. He's an incredibly humble and joyful person, so whether you know his music or not, I guarantee you don't want to miss this. So stay with us. Now I 
Was it a Christian home? Oh, we were Catholic. Okay. So there was a reverence for God. We went mm-hmm. to church. Mm-hmm. Uh, I believed in God. Even as a kid, I remember praying as a little boy with my little sister when the Cuban Missile Crisis was happening mm. in 62, and I was only 11. Yeah. And we were both on our knees in my bedroom praying to God that we'd be safe. Mm. So there was a, a sense of God in our lives. But uh, what happened was, you know, just like Nicodemus uh, came to Jesus, you know, by night. Uh, he was a Pharisee. He was a religious person. He believed in God. Probably tried to follow the laws and the Torah as well as he could, or you know. But Jesus told him, "Yeah, got to be born again," you know. Yeah. So that expression to me was never a turnoff. Mm. Because the first time I even heard it, my sister pointed it out in John chapter 3, and I go, mm. wow, look at that. And of course, my heart was broken from our loss of our mom. She was only 59 because of the car accident. So she just lovingly led me to know God just, just step by step and helped me. She just passed away a little over a year ago, oh, I'm sorry. almost at the age of 80, wow. 88. Yeah. So she had a great life and always mm-hmm. a wonderful cheerful, joyful person. So there's an interesting story. I know I got way ahead of myself. I want to come back to the early days. But uh, Mary Ellen acted in movies with like Alan Ladd and Anthony Quinn and Rex Allen, the the cowboy movies, you know. But she was on TV and she was on Donna Reed and I Love Lucy and Colgate Comedy Hour with Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis. And and you can find those on YouTube. Uh, She was on... Uh, Mickey Dolan's Circus Boy, and uh, Mickey must have been eight, wow. you know, little, uh. like a little blonde-haired kid, and she played Tula, the gypsy, and you know, played the violin. And though she didn't really play violin, she could sing like a bird, though. Hmm. So it's an interesting thing because I became friends with Mickey fifty years later, okay. and her little brother, me, played on uh, six of the twelve songs on Mickey's album Remember. So isn't that interesting? And so I sent Mick, Mickey a little video. Mm-hmm. with pictures of my sister in that, and movies, a video section of that episode, mm. with her voice on the phone saying, hi, Mickey, <laughs> and, and her producer, David. It was just a 30-second thing, but it, it showed her with him. Yeah. And then 50 years later, I play on his album, Her yeah. Little Brother. I mean, what are the chances of that? Yeah, that's amazing. Maybe her grandson, maybe, you know. Sure. But Her Little Brother, that's how spread out 25 years are the kids in the Keggy family were. Hmm. So, uh, oh, by the way, she also had a, a talking bit in the Ten Commandments. Really? Yeah, so when you see that, she's one of the maidens primping by the pond when they find <laughs> the baby Moses in the basket wow. in the river. Yeah. And she's the one that says, uh, hey, be sure it's not a crocodile. <laughs> she didn't say hey, though. No hey. No hey. Just be sure it's not a crocodile. But, you know, when I tell people that story, they go, oh, yeah, I remember that. Yeah. I remember that scene. But, uh, and what a lovely lady she was. And uh, and so back to, say, 1954, okay, Rockabilly was starting, you know. Johnny Johnny Ray was huge. He was on Columbia. And my, my brothers used to tell me, yeah, you used to like listening to Johnny Ray. His song Cry used to really get you. And then Elvis came out in 55, 56, and I do- totally got into Elvis and yeah. imitated him. Yeah. Just like uh, Forrest Gump, you know. Right. I'm there 
you know, with my ukulele. <laughs> We've got movies, family movies of those days. Yeah. And so I remember records became really important because Brother Mike and Dave and Bill, you know, they, they all would bring home their favorite records. Yeah. LPs, 45 RPMs. So they were bringing home, you know, Johnny Cash and the Diamonds, you know, Little Darlin' and uh, Eddie Cochran, Gene Vincent, Elvis Presley, Everly Brothers. And I would be the one that would take care of those records. You know? mm. and, and even though I couldn't read, they used to tell me, oh, they, I knew exactly what record I wanted to listen to. I want to hear Elvis because the, the dog and the label. And yeah. I just kind of identified that. Yeah. So, so I just was a typical kid, you know, went to school. And, mm -hmm. But I just loved music. But I didn't take up the guitar until I was about 10 Okay. 10, 11. That's still pretty young. Yeah? Yeah. Actually, I was into topsy-turvy, you know, Cozy Cole and, um, you know, drummers. Yeah, okay. I really like drummers. Yeah. And I said, hey, can I have maybe some drums for my 10th birthday? Mm -hmm. My dad brought home a silver tone guitar. Silver tone, nice. Acoustic. And, uh, yeah. I think he paid 19 bucks for it. So I really didn't, I would pick it up. My hand was too small for the neck, and the action wasn't very good. But I tried, and then my brother Dave taught me some chords, and uh, and and then that next Christmas, he got me my first electric. Mm -hmm. You know, flat wound strings, easy to play, nice action. Mm -hmm. A little amp, Orpheus amp. I remember, you turn it on, and that's the volume knob too. You know? <laughs> yeah, the volume is the on and off switch, and one input. Eight-inch speaker, ah, I loved it. I just loved it. I, I would play that thing, and I wrote my first song with it. And mm. In fact, I did a uh, a friend of mine said, "Phil, I heard that your first song you ever wrote was called Surfer Joe." I say, "Yeah, that's right." Did you ever demo it? I go, "No, actually, I only remember the first few lines and how the chords went, but I never finished it." Because I was also a fan of the Surfaris at that age, you know, twelve year old. Sure, you know, 60, we lived in California at the 63, time. Sixty three, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We lived in California, and uh, so I bought Wipeout and I bought all those surf records, you know, and Dick Dale, and I'm learning all this stuff as a little kid. Yeah, uh, Surfaris came out. And I learned Moon Dog on their first album, and eventually formed a little band. And uh, were you obsessed with it right away? Yeah, totally. Yeah. I just loved it. I knew that I wanted to be a guitar player. And mm. I just, when I wasn't in school, I was playing it, you know? Really? Mm-hmm. And um, Beatles came out in 64, you know. I heard, I want to hold your hand, looking at that lamp around the corner that used to belong to my grandmother. Her radio, you know, a little, she had a radio, that lamp. And I was, it was like, uh, I'd say January 64, I heard that song. The tones, mm -hmm. you know. I also became really interested in great tone. Mm. I loved uh, the tone of John's Rickenbacker through the Vox and George's Gretsch and the Hofner bass and, and the, the way they all sounded together. You yeah. never heard that sound before. That's the first time a band sounded just like that. So that caught my ear and I got into that and I started my first band in the sixth grade. It's funny you say that about the band sounding that way because... I don't have the experience of being immersed in a world of country and blues and and uh -huh. the early rock and roll sound, which Before is a very they were all separate. Genres. Yeah, exactly. And they were yeah. and they were. It's a very American sound. Uh -huh. And then this thing comes over, 
like just the sound of the Hofner bass was yeah. probably made you scratch your head and go, wow, what is what even is that? I know. It's so different. So it's it's fun to imagine, you know, uh vicariously just experiencing that for the first time. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, and you do have your experiences that you can re- recollect, you know, oh, sure. the first time I heard that or um but music was always making a huge impression on me. In fact, I not only loved rockabilly rock and roll. I loved, you know, Booker T and the MGs and you know, I was into all that and then when uh, Dylan came out, I got into that, you know, mm. I got into Michael Bloomfield and I still, you know, emulate him somewhat in certain recordings that call for that sort of thing. Sure. I got to meet him once, you know, we Glass Harp opened up for Michael Bloomfield and K San Radio in San Francisco in seventy one. We were touring the coast. Uh, and our band opened up for him and his band. Uh, I was really hoping to jam with him because hmm. I learned all his licks, you know. Yeah. Uh, he declined, actually. Uh, <laughs> but uh, it was great to see him. And we did a great set. In fact, it was recorded. And I think part of it is on this collection of jams called Stark Raving Jams by the Glass Harp. Okay. It's, it's a three CD set. And I think a section of that night is on that uh, on that collection. Um, hmm. Anyway, about three years later, I'm recording for Joe Vitale in Criteria Studio in Miami, I'm doing some guitar parts for him. And I go walking around, and I go looking in the window of Studio A, and there's the electric flag. There's Michael Bloomfield sitting there. Yeah. Yeah. I had to go in and say hi, you know. Yeah. And so um, I go in and say, excuse me, Michael, uh, my name's Phil. I was in a band called Glass Harp. We opened up for you, KSAN Radio in 71. He goes, yeah, I remember you. You have that little guy that played his <laughs> off. How old were you in the glass part form? Yeah, I would have been 17 or around there. You know? okay. I, I was in a couple bands in Ohio before that, all, the Squires and the New Hudson Exit. And we, we cut little four, 45 RPMs and, uh, you know, had a little local success, just like about 35 other bands. Yeah. Northeast Ohio flourished with bands, you know, pop bands, cover bands, original yeah. One of, before Glass Harp even started, it was an interesting thing. Our guitar player, lead vocalist, left the New Hudson exit, and so we were looking for someone to replace him. And I saw the Measles. Joe Walsh was playing guitar for his band, the Measles. And I said, "Hey, would you be willing to come if you're not going to be in this band or whatever? Yeah, come and jam. Maybe consider joining our band." He came. No kidding. All the way from Canton to Youngstown and. I was blown away. Of course, I was blown away when I first saw him playing the Flying V with a Echoplex and a wah-wah, wah-wah into a Super Reverb Fender. 
I wanted him in the band, and the other guy said, nah, he's going to steal the show. Yeah. I go, yeah, yeah he should. <laughs> he should. I was just this little guy, you know, I was just a little guitar player guy, you know, yeah. with a lot of spunk and when, I, all I'm, that. I'm curious, was there, was there like a, a moment in your, you know, in those teenage years where you kind of realized like, oh, I'm, I'm good and I'm going to do this? I think it was around the time... I, you know, you have different stages of, I think I'm good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was um, in the squires. Uh, we'd play in bars, you know. I was mm. just an eighth grade, ninth grader. You wow. know? But my mom let me do it. My dad let me do it. And our bass player was my big Sh- brother. He chaperone. chaperone. He, yeah. <laughs> he took, kept a good eye on me. And the guys that owned these places that we played at, uh, you know, I knew that I had something going because of I was a sponge, I was taking music and I was learning Yardbirds and Birds and yeah. Beatles stuff and all this stuff that was going on at the time, pop songs. And I, I thought, well, you know, I'm, I'm learning these songs. I'm singing, you know, a Beatle tune or Herman's Hermits or <laughs> whatever yeah. was popular. So then uh, after the New Hudson exit, um, and that was during the time of Pepper and Magical Mystery Tour in that era, mm-hmm. and we were learning, you know, stuff like that. Well, when I talked to John about starting Glass Harp, we wanted to be a big band, you know, with horns and organ and everything, like the electric flag. But we ended up just being a three-piece. And uh, we got Steve Markland to play bass. He was a friend of ours from high school. Hmm. Uh, He stayed on, and then he left the group to join the Human Beings. Hmm. You know, remember that group? I don't know that group. Yeah. Nobody But Me song on Capitol. And his cousin was in the group, Ting. So Steve went with them, and so we got another bass player in the interim. And then a few months after that, Daniel Pecchio joined us, and he became our permanent bass player. Mm-hmm. So we did our first album up at Electric Lady Studio in New York City. Were you with a label at the time? Mm, yeah, we got signed to DECA. Okay. Uh, Louis Mernstein discovered us okay. at a battle of the bands and nice. in, in Canton. We won yeah. that day. <laughs> May not have been a whole lot of competition, I don't know, but we won, I guess. We, we were high-spirited. Sure. We loved the jam. We were an early jam band. Yeah, those records have a ton of energy. The studio records are very staid, mm-hmm. but the live record, Carnegie yeah. Hall, where we opened up for the Kinks, it, that, that really showed us, you know, yeah. showed us what we could really do. And we were abandoned, uninhibited, because we were just playing live together and all that. And we had to prove ourselves to an audience. Yeah. I wasn't too sure, but the response was great. But yeah, we were a jam band, and um, I think John and Daniel were better songwriters than me, mm. really. I was, but I was the lead guitar player. and So I was developing. I think I was a, a product of all my influences. And then I started kind of developing, I think, my own signature mm-hmm. to an extent. I was starting tapping, do alternate tunings. Mm-hmm. Even back in 69, I had an E6 tuning yeah. that eventually I, I used to use it in a, a solo. Okay. You know, I'd, I'd go off and play solo in this crazy tuning. And then when I did my first solo album in 73, What a Day, there, I used that tuning on the last track of the album. You know, it's a real pretty tuning.
Before we get back to the episode, I want to tell you about our sponsor, the Christian Standard Bible. The CSB captures the Bible's original meaning without compromising clarity. An optimal blend of accuracy and readability, this translation helps readers make a deeper connection with God's Word and inspires lifelong discipleship. The CSB is truly for everyone, for readers young and old, new and seasoned. It's a Bible pastors can preach from and a Bible you can share with your neighbor hearing God's Word for the very first time. Reading your Bible shouldn't feel like a chore. Learn more at csbible.com. Along the way, okay. you know, as you're living in this world, w- did you feel tension at all between kind of being in the rock and roll world and your Christian faith? Uh-huh. Yeah. 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 It's interesting. Daniel and John and I, we were friends and brothers and are such to this day. Yeah. But because we were so young and I was very more, I had more fervor about communicating my faith. I just, I kind of felt that God saved me, uh, he blessed me, and then he, he, you know, he brought Bernadette into my life. You know, she was 15 when I met her, I was mm. 19. We're just kids, in a way. I see, she certainly was. I married her when she was 18, <laughs> yeah. after she graduated from high school, and she's been my wife for 45 years. Oh, fantastic. And she's a wonderful, lovely lady. But the tension with Dan and John was a quiet tension. Mm-hmm. We we never yelled at each other. We never cussed at each other. Mm-hmm. We we respected each other. They were frustrated sometimes with me because you know I, almost all of the songs I was singing had some reference to faith. Yeah, and I I thought that I knew how to communicate the gospel that way a little bit to just let people know that God loves them. Jesus mm-hmm. died for them. You know the basics of the gospel, freedom. While at the same time, John was writing better poetry and putting it to music. Daniel was doing the same. Yeah. You know? So kudos to those guys. I think uh, their songs on the, the studio albums were really good. But as far, you know, as, as far as being in the context you were and singing about Jesus, did, did you get feedback from crowds or other bands? Yeah, or other, yeah, know, yeah. I witnessed the guys in the yeah. other bands. I just love talking about the Lord, you know. I did more of it then than I do now because I wasn't playing churches that much. I was in clubs and on tour, you know. For that time with Glass Harp, you know, we were playing concert halls, you know, opening up for traffic and Blood Rock and Chicago and, yes, uh, (laughs) Kinks, you know. And the list goes on and on and on. You know, Edgar Winter and, you know, Humble Pie, we became friends with those guys, Peter Frampton and... um, and I would share my faith with just about all of them if I had a chance. You know, right. Alice Cooper. <laughs> the guys would just let me do my thing, uh, and they'd get a little bit quiet. I really struggled with leaving the band in August 72. I mm-hmm. I mean, I actually thought about doing it as early as 70 or okay. late 70, and I stayed on. You know, we worked so hard to get to where we were. So I, I, I finally left after we recorded our third album, which was called It Makes Me Glad. And uh, and it was hard. It was hard. I just kind of kind of retreated into playing student unions and colleges and coffee houses and mm-hmm. churches with my friend Peter York. And we did that as a twosome until Bernadette and I moved up to New York in 74. Were you drawn at all to kind of the Jesus music phenomenon mm-hmm. and what Larry Norman was doing? Oh, and, oh yeah. 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 In fact, uh, Larry Norman, we did concerts together uh, after I left Glass Harp, Stonehill, and then I toured with Love Song. 
okay. in uh, fall of 1973, right after my wife and I got married. Uh, we toured for three months, became really good friends. And then, you know, I, I came to know Andre Crouch's music and the Disciples, and I loved gospel. Mm-hmm. And those guys would invite me whenever they came to Ohio to come and sit in. He'd say, hey, Bill Maxwell, the drummer, the producer, would call. We're going to be in Akron tonight, man. Come and bring your Les Paul. And I, they let me play all night on the stage. Huh? And that was a thrill. I bet. Because, you know, it's like soulful stuff. Mm-hmm. It's the gospel music, you know. And so, but what I was doing, I was doing, you know, the acoustic thing. I kind of went into an easy thing. I got out of hard rock, you mm-hmm. know. Not that glass harp was ever really hard rock, but we had our moments, you know. Yeah, because a lot of people, uh, I'm going to guess a lot of people who listen to this conversation okay. are probably familiar with you more as an acoustic player mm-hmm. than as an electric player because mm-hmm. um, of the solo stuff that you've done. And the, it, Was that when that shift kind of took place and you started doing more with the acoustic mm-hmm. around yeah. that time? Yeah, in fact, uh, we were, the Glass Harp, we were opening up in September, of s- September October of 71 in San Diego, and there was a group called It's a Beautiful Day. Mm-hmm. They had a hit called White Bird. The guy who was the announcer and the host, master of ceremonies, uh, MC, uh, he and I got talking during an intermission. And I told him my story, what happened to me, and how I came to the Lord, you know, searching and experimenting and trying this, trying that, mom's uh, car crash. And, and then what happened to me, you know, and the burden lifted at the just something came into my life that was fresh and new and beautiful. And I started sharing my story with me. He started weeping. Hmm. And his name was Don, still is. <laughs> I, I led him to the Lord. He got on his knees and he prayed. Hmm. And and then he introduced, uh, I think the glass harp opened up for It's a Beautiful Day. And during that intermission. And then later that month, he came to visit me where I was staying with my brother in Newport Beach. And he said, I got something I want to give you. He came up and he says, for, for sharing your story with me, I want you to have this. And he gave me a Mark Evan White book, acoustic guitar. Mm. He gave this beautiful cedar top dreadnought guitar to yeah. me. I was blown away because I, at the time I had a little cheap classical, but I didn't have a really good acoustic. In fact, I loaned my acoustic that I did have that was fairly good guitar to somebody who told me it got crashed in a car car. But 16 years later, came to me and said, I'm sorry, I, I can't live with myself anymore. I hawked it. Please forgive me. I said, you're forgiven. God has blessed me. Yeah. You know, just just a couple months after that, this man gives me this gorgeous guitar. And, you know, James Taylor was playing those kind of guitars at the time. Uh-huh. And I, you can hear it all through the What A Day album in Love Broke Through. I played that acoustic guitar. So... Uh, we were going up and down the coast, and we played at uh, Winterland, and we played the Fillmore, and you know we played these great venues. Yeah. And the thing is, you know, it was all new. You know, there wasn't a Christian genre, there wasn't CCM. It was just us musicians getting God getting a hold of us, and some were better at what they did, and some weren't as good. But we all did what we thought we should do. Right. You know, I think. Being, you know, a short guy, I had hair then, but I <laughs> don't have much on top now. Nine fingers, just definitely not a rock and roll vibe, you know. <laughs> Even though Jerry Garcia had the same middle finger missing. Yeah. That kind of encouraged me when I came to know that. 
I think I just did pour my heart into what I could do, what mm-hmm. I could learn. And so I did become more of an acoustic player. Mm. I, I kept the Les Paul nearby. Yeah. And Peter York and I would go on the road in our, we had a, I had a Volkswagen, and a Princeton Reverb, my Les Paul, the white book and a classical. And yeah. Just between those three guitars and us two guys, we'd go out and play. And we were, we were good. You know, we actually, we, I have tapes of us from those days and we played and sounded pretty good. I think we brought joy to a lot of people. You know, rock and roll had an attitude. And mm-hmm. I said, well, I'm going to just kind of be who I am. But then Love Broke Through, Buck Herring, who produced Second Chapter of Acts, and I toured with them also mm-hmm. in 77. We did a live album. He produced the second album, Love Broke Through, and uh, he wanted to hear me play some electric on that. Mm-hmm. So there was that song, Time. Uh-huh. There was a bit of a guitar bit in that. But I was still very tentative. Why do you think you were tentative? It's just that I didn't have a band, and mm. I really liked quiet music for a while, for a change. Mm. I enjoyed the change. I mean, I uh, I toured with Love Song, and I played electric in 73. I, I did a couple albums, Paul Clark, and I played electric and acoustic on that. I was doing studio stuff. But then in 78, I did a live album. I mean, no, I did a an instrumental album, my first instrumental called The Master and the Musician. I, and that was me kind of going back to my what-a-day kind of thing where I'm playing most of the instruments. After that album, and those first four albums, which were What a Day, Love Broke Through, Emerging, my band with Phil Madeira and Lynn Nichols and a couple other guys, uh, and Master Musician, after those four albums, which were on a, a small indie label, uh, we went. I went to Sparrow. And, I, and by that time, the Christian music is definitely a thing. It's Yeah, I, and I think that <clears throat> I was on one of the very first covers of the CCM magazine mm. in a leather jacket with a Scottish cap and flipping a coin. <laughs> that was a cool cover, actually. I did speak to some issues, you know. Mm-hmm. I, I did have a pro-life song, Flipside, which is called Little Ones. And um, my wife, during the time in the 70s, we lost babies three times. Oh, man. So triplets the first time five and a half along second time a baby boy lived three days six and a half along months wow. and then a miscarriage so we actually you know we went through a lot of heartache during that time yeah and so actually moving to kansas city in 79 from upstate new york was a healing to us mm-hmm. it was really great we started a family alicia was born healthy and uh i wrote little ones a couple weeks before she was born because I kept having the memories of those little babies, and I just, I thought, maybe I should speak up for them. Yeah. And that's that's what I did. But, you know, in a peaceful way. It's not your style to be too confrontational? and No, it's not. Doesn't seem like it's your temperament. No, no. Blessed are the peacemakers. Yeah, for you sure. Know, I, you know, I think that uh, we were all searching for peace in the 60s, and I found peace, and even though... I've had struggles with fear. Everybody does. I know my God. I know Jesus. and He's my Prince of Peace. And mm-hmm. so, all that's real to me. First he sings, and then he goes. And what it means, it's hard to know. Come back next week to hear more from Phil. He'll talk about his iconic record, Beyond Nature, his solo performances, and he'll talk about the time he got to jam with Paul McCartney. I did these songs, and 
And afterwards, he says, you did a fine job. You, uh, you have a nice voice, and you remind me a bit of James Taylor. Also, we have some big news. The response to this season has been terrific, and we're excited about the feedback we've been getting for the show, the growing numbers, the reviews. So we've decided to make a big change. Cultivated is just going to keep running now, year-round, no more seasons. Now, to make sure we can do that, we're also transitioning to releasing episodes every other week. So, next week, we'll release another episode here with Phil, and after that, it'll be every other week, year-round. Nothing should change for you, so long as you've subscribed to the show. Speaking of which, if you haven't done it, please subscribe today. Today's episode was produced by me. It was recorded by Eddie Morris. It was edited by Quinette Connor. It was mixed by Mark Owens. Our music today was by The Glass Harp and Phil Kagey. Our theme song is by Roman Candle. And we want to give special thanks today to Jeremy Casella, who helped make this episode happen. See you next week. This episode was brought to you in part by The Compelled Podcast, which uses gripping, immersive storytelling to bring Christian testimonies to life. Listen to missionaries, addicts, martyrs, and more who have seen Jesus at work in unbelievable ways. Listen on your podcast app or compelledpodcast.com.